Hello and welcome to another edition of Java Cakes for Proust. Join myself, Gary, is Mr. Tilted Racer. And And Tyler again. So we have effectively, like Gary Sparrow, we've moved effortlessly from one time zone into another because what we've done this week is we have gone from the 50s pop that we were talking about previously via the Beatles and then on to some 60s pop. Hey, hey, hey. So we're going to discover what the differences are between the 50s and the 60s. I mean, on the face of it, not much because it's still black and white, isn't it? I am so, so sorry. I think I might have done a bad job this time. Oh? Well, I tried to pick a reasonable balance of movies. One of these was suggested by Tyler, but I'm not going to put the blame on him. (laughs) Be my guest. Okay, it's a sequel to Live It Up. So it'll be interesting to see how Live It Up's approach might have changed that very slightly cautious approach to early 60s pop and, of course, still into trad jazz. Has it changed? Hasn't it changed? And then, of course, we have Gonks Go Beat. That's a bit of nonsensical fluff. And the third movie, well, that's got the Spencer Davis group, so obviously that's going to be just a little bit more credible. Mm, you'd like to I think so. I not want anything too kitchen sink. So there were certain movies I've avoided, because I didn't want anything too heavy, but I thought Spencer Davis group, they'll bring a little bit more to the table. Oh, boy. I'm quite fond of the um, Bunny Lake is Missing, but I, know, I don't think you're that keen yourself, are you, Till? Well, it's not a pop movie, as I found when I watched it. <laughs> I watched it for the zombies, and they're in for like a second. It's really shoehorned in, aren't they? The zombies on the pub television. I became aware of it because on the zombies box set, they have, I guess, an unedited session for a trailer that the zombies recorded. And they're saying, oh yeah, the zombies are there. That's us. That's me. That's him. That's he. And, well, yes, technically the zombies are there, but... Only technically. I thought they were going to be part of the plot. So I have massive resentment, and it doesn't count because it's not about pop music. There's half of one song in it. Well, I don't mind admitting that even though only one of these is what could technically be classed as a film, then I actually quite enjoyed all of these. Well, that's good. Even Gong's Go Beat, which I heard so much about previously. So the thing is, they're, they're all post Hard Day's Night. I was watching each of these films. Going into it, asking myself, what have they learned from the Beatles? What has A Hard Day's Night taught them about making an effective pop music film? I'm not sure I got an answer from any of them, really. I did enjoy them all for different reasons. I think two of them are like the Beatles never happened. One of them is like the Beatles have happened, but the lessons haven't entirely been taken on board. So let's start, I think, with Be My Guest. So last time we were with David Hemmings and his friends who had formed a band and had had some success with it. And that's about as much as we can say. We find David Hemmings again, and Heinz and Jenny Moss have gone, and I don't think we find out what happened to them. But his other two friends, Steve Marriott of the Small Faces and the rest, what's happening is David Hemmings' family are moving to Brighton to take over a guest house. That's a good, solid idea. The first thing that struck me was the theme music was fake Beach Boys. So my first thought after that, though, was going to Brighton. Are we going to have a bit of a mods and rockers thing? But no, none of that Brighton Beach stuff. I was looking at the 
beginning credits, opening credits, there was a list of, you know, who was going to appear. And you had Jerry Lee Lewis, which surprised me. Nashville Teens, I knew the Nashville Teens were going to be in it. But then there were like um, bands I'd never heard of, like Kenny and the Wranglers and the Plebs. And of course, there's a fictional band in the film called Slash Wildly and the Cutthroats. That was a bit confused. I thought they were going to take more of a presence in the plot than they did. It almost feels like this has been rewritten somewhere because the antagonist was a number of antagonists. The first one really encounter is Robin surname. Robin Stewart from TV's own Bless This House and Adventures of a Private Eye. But then everybody's in that, so. Who plays a character that Gary and I called Cuthbert Snidely. <laughs> <laughs> I think something's implied about Cuthbert, isn't it? I think, was he? Never said. He uses the word ducky a lot. and He's not Inman-level camp by any means, but he's clearly meant to be a little bit like that. Yeah, it, that's not just us. You know, there are other people on the internet who are not as well-behaved as we are, who watch old films, and every time anybody stands next to another person of the same gender, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think there is an implication because he says to David Hemming's character, because David Hemming's character has just started this kind of apprenticeship at the local newspaper, and it's like, oh, well, you can get um, the tea and the snacks in. And David Hemming goes, fairy cakes for you. It's horrible in one way that they're implying that the gay guy is the villain or the villain is the gay guy. Is he a villain because he's gay? There is a little bit of sex bubbling beneath the surface of this because when the impresario is talking to his protege, this female pop star, I never remember the characters' names. So if I don't know the actors' names, I'm lost. Her name is Wanda. And he's um, Milton Bass was the impresario. That's it. And one of his ideas is, he says... We need to combine skating with sex. Fanny Hill on ice. <laughs> so there's a certain boldness under the surface. Yeah, I guess we can map a little bit of social change in this, but as they say on Tumblr, parts of it are problematic. They include language and themes of their time. If you were doing an announcement on continuity. At the end of the day, though, he wasn't the real villain, was he? Without... Spoilers. No, that's the thing. That's why I got the feeling that there was something off here because Cuthbert, not his name, he's got this thing about recommending Slash Wildly in the Cutthroats, and I thought this is going to cause some sort of face-off. And Slash Wildly, they are kind of connected to it, but in the end, the big confrontation, the big plot, is not about that. Actually, um, didn't he have a column? Or oh, he was suggesting a column for the local newspaper. What was it? Was it like it's rock cock? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's it. Oh, did, yeah. did we just have the cock? No, no, he did say it. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that, that that was it. Was the whole hey, hey odd man out? Fantastic. <laughs> and of course, we have a link to odd man out because Avril Angers is here. Oh, she was a right old tartar, wasn't she? The the domestic lady. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And another sitcom stalwart as well, Diana King is playing Dave's This is mother. Peacock. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, they've recast his parents. Yeah, Ivor Salter is Herbert Martin, and he's a bit of a miserable... Son. Yeah, the father. What was he? I, I didn't look on the IMDb for him, but I feel I've seen him in things, but I just couldn't place him. Leave this with me. I'm going to fire up Ivor Salter into the chocolate block, and we'll see what we've got. Here we go. So I didn't see Live It Up. I heard your podcast about it. Well, surely that should be as good as watching it. 
virtually a commentary. Was it basically Hemming's friends with Ricky and Phil? Yes. And they had another friend called Ron. Which was Heinz, yeah? Yes. Okay. Okay, reporting back about Ivor Salter. There's no one specific show which is standing out here as, ah, yes, I recognise him from that. He's more one of those people who appears in everything. So he's been in Doctor Who, he's been in the Sweeney, he's been in Zed Cars, all manner of different things, just here, there and everywhere. But my exclamation there was because one show that he had a regular role in, in for a penny as Councillor Bundy. And regular listeners will be aware that I am obsessed with this lost Bob Todd sitcom set in a lavatory. (laughs) So there you go. Oh, he's also in an episode of Selwyn as Surly Man. (laughs) I can see that. (laughs) Not typecast then. He seemed thoroughly browned off throughout the film. There was nothing that, nothing could please the guy. Yeah, but 1965 was probably like that for men of a certain, men of our age. The, the, yeah, 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 you put it like that, yeah. I bet he's How like 37. <laughs> Can I just ask about the plot? Because it wasn't a complicated film, but they were trying to drum up business publicising both the guest house and they were trying to publicise this talent show. I just didn't quite get how the two met or merged, if you know what I mean. There were obviously two distinct strands that didn't seem to have any connection other than David Hemmings. I think that was the connection. And again, it contributes to that feeling that this is a number of different drafts, that if you had a copy of the script, the pages would be different colours. You can feel have turned the page and, oh, right, sorry, we're back to draft one, so slash while in the cutthroats, a really important turn a page. No, it's the American impresario. He's more, oh, David Hemmings and his girlfriend who's come over from the US. Export dollar. And this contributes one thing to this whole like the Beatles never happened. The big reward at the end, spoilers, isn't really musical success. It's him becoming a successful reporter. His big reward is that he can have a career now that means he doesn't have to play music anymore if he doesn't want to. And he gets to stick two fingers up at Cuthbert. We're not really uh, talking over each other. Do we not have many points to make about this? What did you think of the seduction scene? It was a bit espresso bongo, wasn't it? There's that cynicism's crept in. And again, there's a lot more sex in this than there was in any of our early 60s films. Also the thing of... So David Hamish's character has met this American girl on the train to Brighton and they've kind of become girlfriend and boyfriend. She has come to Brighton because she's met a producer who's going to help her hit the big time, but of course she hasn't. He's just a chancer who uses that as patter. She then gets this job promoting the talent contest, isn't she? They try and also use her to promote the hotel, and she's handing out cards, basically, I'm staying at this bed and breakfast, why don't you? Which results in a visit from the police. (laughs) The most polite policeman I've ever seen on screen. Why wasn't he David Lodge? Exactly. (laughs) and then Wanda the visiting superstar singer tries to seduce David Hemmings just to get him to sign over the rights to a song that they think will be a big hit and they compare him a pittance for 
Well, there's a lot of stuff happening, isn't there? That's it? the thing, and it kind of all the last ten minutes, everything's crammed into the last ten minutes because they've got the actual acts performing. They've got the clapometer business. They're rigging the clapometer using. Is it, were they using an actual crowd recorded at a Beatles concert? Is that what they said? I think there's just a certain element of let's not even really confront that. They just say Beatlemania. Yeah. Okay. So, but that could be a sarcastic thing. Or a little slice of Beatlemania. But there's that very convenient confession, which they catch on tape, and then it gets wound up very quickly. I'd like to think that the recording of the audience was actually from the TV theatre, and it was a recording of Crackerjack. Now, that'd just be a bunch of scouts, though, wouldn't it? Going, yay! But it's still noise. Yeah, it was still... Yes, but it's like, hang on a minute. That wasn't a typical pop audience. And actually, if you listen carefully, I think we're going to hear Peter Glaze in the background. (laughs) I was struck by how ordinary so many members of the groups playing looked. So many members of the bands looked like bank clerks. Some of them just looked weird. I mean, very straight, very ordinary. Forced into suits at gunpoint, you know what I mean? None of this struck me at the time, but yes, the more I look at it, the more tangled this is. The plot's a tangle. It's the black and white of the three movies, so it's got that kind of slightly drab quality this is not like high contrast glamorous black and white it makes things look fairly ordinary the plot payoff is not you're now a pop star where his girlfriend even then she's going to be a star of stage but the payoff for the hero is you're now well launched in the career that you want and you have a little sideline as a songwriter there's all this sex which kind of clashes with the tone of the rest of the film, which feels, you know, more pre-Beatles in its way. It's at this moment, isn't it, of indecision. Are things going to go back to normal in the world, or are the 60s going to continue? And this is a movie that's catching that, looking in a number of different directions at once. Which tack do we take? Yeah, because they've obviously, the smart Alex, the band that Hemmings and Marriott and the other bloke have, Obviously, there's some talent there because they've got a song which was going to be a big hit. So why, yeah, why didn't the film end with them in the back of a van on their way to London or whatever to record a TV show or whatever it might be? I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's David Hemmings looking at success as a reporter and stuff Marriott and the other bloke. Feels like there's a film here for young people that's been made by people who are not young. There's a mildly patronizing not the right word patrician that even that seems a bit too severe it has one outlook it looks like somebody somewhere's brought another outlook into it and they've kind of curdled and one thing that struck me at the beginning was david hemmings walking around with his deer stalker and thinking all oh, right so is this to imply that he's been listening to the downliner sect and he's got his don crane hat indicating there's a depth of knowledge so it, it kind of feels like the script's gone one way and maybe David Hemmings and Steve Marriott have come and said, can we just change this, change that? It's a young person's film, but it's not a film in a young person's world. There are still authority figures. So who's this film trying to appeal to? Is this, again, similar to Hard Day's Night, are we trying to appeal to a fairly broad base? I think that's it. And you have this bit where Jerry Lee Lewis is just on TV. (laughs) So there's an excuse to stick in Jerry Lee Lewis. The Nashville teens are inserted sideways. So you have a bit where somebody comes in on a a talent contest saying, here's somebody who's already successful. Which does seem a bit unfair, according to the rules. These people are not competing. 
Uh, if you want unfair, let's wait till we get to Gonk's Go Beat. <laughs> so this was released, a little bit of research that I did, this was uh, released as a B-movie to support the intelligent men. The target audience for the intelligent men would have been, what, people our age, maybe? People with TVs, really. It's gone for a broad base, I think, this film, but it hasn't really been able to hide it delicately. It, you can just see it grabbing one side and then grabbing the other and trying to hold on to both sides and straining. And even we can say, like, Expresso Bongo, what a crazy world. Hey, young people, this is what your lives are like. Hey, adults, this is a satire on the world they're growing up in. Not necessarily taking against them, but you can appreciate the fact that we've got a wry eye on this. Whereas this, I'm making it sound like a worse film than it is. It's only when I actually came to talk. It just lit by when I watched it. But it's only now when I come to talk about it that I realise this is a mess. Comparing it to the other two films, I would say it's probably the best written of the three that we watched. Tell me if this makes me a fuddy-duddy, but I was more interested in the B&B. I, I wanted to sort of opt out of the whole me David too. Hemmings plot yeah. with like a sort of red button option and just <laughs> see them trying to run the place and what have you. Yeah, it did feel like... In for Trouble, the Larkins film. That's it. Nothing in the plot was moving in one direction. There were different elements of the plot that were all like their own separate films that were forced to coexist. Uh, and yet we've got most of the same cast. We've got the same director. I don't know if we have the same writer. If anybody's looking at the IMDb, could you tell me if the screenplay and the original idea from the same people the as Live It Up. writer is Lynn Fairhurst. Yes, it is the same writer. Lynn Fairhurst also wrote Live It Up. I could have done with seeing more of Mrs. Pusel. And the thing is, she turns out to be sort of like the hero of the piece, and yet she then disappears afterwards. So she has that complete sort of U-turn as far as her personality is concerned. You never see her again. Well, exactly. She gives Hemmings that £10. I'm not quite sure what the £10 was meant for. Was it to buy kit or something? It was to rent instruments. And he had a Fender Telecaster. Wow. He's either a hell of a deal maker or the other two had lousy instruments. Eight pounds of this. <laughs> Ten is going on my guitar. <laughs> I guess Marriott was only about 17, 18 when he made this. The reason you're here, Tyler, is to help us a little bit because some of this music is a bit credible and proper. And that's not really my field. I'm more into the studio trickery, the soft pop, the toy town rock. And when it comes to this kind of thing, I don't really have a field. I'm just sort of bemused and sort of tutting and thinking, I'm still not absolutely convinced that the 60s were a good thing, bring back national service. <laughs> now, Tyler, you said that Be My Guest was the best written. Mm. It's not really saying much, Well, is it? there was a few lines that stood out, and it's more than I can say about the other two, really. Without, I mean, the other two had their charms. They had aspects to them that were intriguing and interesting. But this seemed, of the three, to me, this seemed the most cohesive. Because Gonks Go Beat, this is the movie that really is, we're back to adults who don't really know how to approach this stuff, want to get something out, cash in on this craze but it's not really worth taking seriously on its own terms, so any old nonsense will do, as long as got the bands. Oh, you know, the young people, they're not very discerning. No, it's not right, is it? It's not right to say that this is contemptuous of its audience. <laughs> but it takes its audience for granted a great deal, I think. The thing is that I was aware of this film 
long, long ago. And I don't know how it caught my attention, but I think it was in Halliwell's Film Guide or something like that, where just by going by the description of it, I thought, wow, this sounds special. This sounds like the kind of film I'm never going to get to see because I'm never going to put it on television. I mean, by and large, that's sort of true. I mean, it does turn up occasionally on talking pictures and what have you, but it's not as if it runs every Saturday afternoon on ITV or anything like that. I mean, I think this and probably the cool Mikado, I think they've sort of got a reputation as supposedly being the, the, the absolute depths as far as filmmaking is concerned, but I quite enjoyed this. It was good, silly fun. <laughs> Do you think that the director, the producers, the older, you know, the Kenneth Connors and Frank Thornton's in the cast, do you think they actually sat down and asked the the young people who were appearing in the film for their opinion in terms of the way that youth culture was being portrayed in the film? Because it just seemed that, like you say, it was an older person's idea of what the young kids are listening to and the young kids are into. It really was very, I don't know, old-fashioned, really. It was a 1960s movie made with a 1950s mindset. It might as well be about a genre that didn't last. It might as well be something that had half the cultural life of Skiffle, given how much care and the approach is. And this little thing's like, I suppose on the one hand you could take it as a good-natured joke, but when they're in Beatland, we will describe how this very strange world has come into being. No, we won't. We don't know how it came into being. Okay, let's go right down to the basics. What was the nature of the apocalypse on Earth that left there being only two countries, each of which was based around an approach to a certain kind of pop music? Well, I don't think they'd like to talk about it. I think uh, along the lines of you know Mitchell and Webb, I think it's simply referred to as the incident and otherwise remain indoors. There's two countries and there's the island that Frank Thornton's on. Yes, the island of Frank Thornton. So some intergalactic space council has decided to send an envoy there to do something. Is he trying to prevent war or foment war or just find out what's happening and report back? I think he's trying to prevent there being a war, isn't he? And the punishment for failure is banishment to planet planet Gonk. (laughs) You see, that's another sign of an exploitation mindset at work here. Right, what are kids like? Like pop music. Make a movie with some pop bands. What else is big now? Gonks, right. Name it after gonks and shoot some footage with some gonks. Stick that in there. And some crazy dancing. Some girls dancing. I can't believe this film isn't directed by Michael Winner. (laughs) (laughs) He did do the cool Mikado, because that was where his career was at at this point. It really is just in, out. This movie probably took about as long to shoot as it does to watch. It was shot in real time, you think, yeah? Or half that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a fan of Kenneth Connor, so I knew straight away I was probably going to like this, even if it was really crud, because he was going to be good fun. And he is. Do you not find, though, a little bit of Kenneth Connor goes a long way, though, when he's doing certain performances? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I know... We've joked about it in the past, about the, the book about Charles Hawtrey with the footnote, Kenneth Connor, what a pain in the arse. I've never found that about Kenneth Connor, but I suppose you know, some people may, it may be a sort of, you can take him or leave him or whatever, but he's playing a role here which is similar to some of the roles that he's playing in some of the early Carry On films. That sort of awkward, 
trying to please everybody, but you know, not very good at it, and so on, sort of role. So I think he's overacting to keep his interest up. I think when we have a scene between him and Frank Thornton, we see two different approaches, both of them legitimate, which is we're in the middle of this thing, we're working, we're glad to be working, but obviously this is not a serious film, this is not a lavish film, this is not a great comedy. So we have to do something just to prevent ourselves falling asleep or running out the room screaming. So Kenneth Connor overacts and Frank Thornton treats it as if he's doing Hamlet at the Old Vic. Yeah, at the beginning, in the when we first meet Mr. A&R, Frank Thornton character, I don't know if it's the lighting. I think it is the lighting. It looks like he's had a fine dusting of talcum powder. It's very pale. Yeah, it looks like he's come off the set of Carnival of Souls. And I love the suit he's wearing. He looks, he looks very flash. I'd love to know if there was any ad-libbing in this. Because the dialogue seems very bald in places. I mean, Mr. A&R just explained who he is and what he does. And we have Kenneth Connor quoting Norman Vaughan. And it's like, is that in the script? Or again, are you just kind of like, he's swinging, dodgy. Well, this film is held up as so bad it's good. I'm not sure to what extent that's really fair, though. Surely to be really bad, it would have to be trying harder. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to give this film a kicking and I'm not. Let's just put any idea of exploitation out of our minds. Let's say these people are genuinely trying to entertain people because they feel they deserve entertainment and obviously they want to make a profit, but there's no contempt. Seen in that light, this is just... Yeah, well, we had to get some bands together. We had to have an excuse to put this together. We really didn't have the time or the resources to put a spectacular and convoluted plot into this thing, so we just thought of uh, something that could be covered in a couple of lines, and look, there are the bands, and they're in colour. Isn't that nice? It's 1965, colour is beginning to supplant black and white, so hey, you can come and see your favourites. You want to see the Graham Bond organisation, kids? Mm. Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. Oh, yeah, yes. I know, yes. Looking bemused. Yes, that scene was fabulous. That was brilliant. The whole drum-off with uh, Ronnie Vettel, who, of course, was Animal, Muppet Show. And yeah, no, that scene was brilliant. Is there a soundtrack album available for this? Because I'd, li- I'd like yes. that. I'd like that. I've seen a yeah. cover. Okay, yes. I'd like to get a hold of that because I'd like a copy of that drum session. That was brilliant. I think um, Andy White took part in that as well, Till. He did, yes. So a point I was going to make much, much earlier and then got distracted. So there's the tutor in Beatland and he tells off Graham for having good diction says mumble man mumble now on the one hand is that a kind of wink wink come on we all know or is this a grown-ups put down why you can't understand any of the words probably the latter so we're not going to give this movie the benefit of the doubt there was a short sequence where terry scott i'm not sure if he fluffed his lines or he was or it was in the script for him to fluff his lines or for him to get flustered do you know the bit i mean when he's talking to the prime minister of the of Beatland. And I just it just seemed to me that he'd fluffed his lines. He managed to recover and carry on. I think they just kept it in because they couldn't be bothered cutting it out. <laughs> Doing a Telford Thomas, I believe, Gary would call that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know we'd like to not over-explain, but Gary, just quickly tell us about Telford Thomas. Telford Thomas, the well-known uh, Welsh comedian, actor, turns up as... Mr. Cheeseman in a series of Dad's Army. He appears in the worst film ever made, Come Play With Me, 
and corpses in the middle of a scene. The scene is then left in the final cut of the film, supposedly because the director, George Harris Marks, was inebriated at the time and didn't notice what was going on. Well, if we're going to do this, can I mention TSW's opening show? Which wasn't TSW's opening show. It came several hours <laughs> into TSW's first day. It was on about 8pm, I think. And it was presented by Lenny Bennett, a man who is not from the Southwest, but no, that's okay. You want a skilled MC keeping things moving. And there is one bit where they're going over to a particular item. I can't even remember which item it is. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And he said, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I blew it. Yeah, can we um, can we do it again? That's it. It just crossfades into the item. So I don't know if they wanted to pretend it was live. But <laughs> it's just like, okay, so we've got him failing to introduce an item but there it is for all the world to see <laughs> maybe they just wanted to embarrass lenny bennett because you do sort of get the impression that his false sort of bonhomie is not going down particularly well with the uh members of staff does the md at one point says i don't think we'll be seeing you back here again <laughs> i don't remember that well, the, the thing was that it was, it was like the managing director or somebody he was supposed to be good at palm reading and Lenny Bennett, you know, straight away says, I'll oh, go on there. Well, yeah, read my palm. And the guy looks at it and says, yeah, well, I uh, don't think we'll be seeing you around here again. And it gets like a sort of, not quite a round of applause, but appreciative laugh from the staff who he's just been cheeky to for the past 90 minutes. Tyler, you have a question. I hope it brings us back onto our topic. Well, it does. So if, if you're going to go on a spying mission to a foreign country, to the enemy, you're entering enemy territory, why would you wear a bright red top? I'm talking about the guy who's in the foliage taking a photograph of the guy who looks like Heinz and his friend. And I'm, I'm trying to think of an answer. It just falls into them. It just sort of falls over into them. And obviously that's contrived so that he gets caught and can meet the Prime Minister's daughter and the whole Romeo and Juliet strand begins. I have seen this occasionally listed as being partially based on Romeo and Juliet. If you went into this film thinking you were going to see a loose adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, I think you would be surprised at just how loose it is in that we don't actually meet the <laughs> characters until i think more than halfway through and they don't die fair's fair do you think this movie would have a different reputation if it was exactly the same except for a downer ending <laughs> <laughs> i mean are they gonna go to town on it i mean they're actually gonna switch to like black and white and just change the entire tone of the film in the last five minutes are they really gonna do it properly that's their intention and then of course he'd have to have a postscript because that would mean kenneth connor had failed his mission and he would be sent to the world of gonks so you would go straight from the death of two star-crossed lovers to <laughs> kenneth connor presumably on a black background <laughs> just having gonks thrown out at the end and pulling a first and going no <laughs> which was the ending of the Zeffirelli, Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it got taken out after previews. I didn't understand what was so wrong with Gonkville anyway. Can I get it right? Planet Gonk. Oh, whatever. But I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it was just like, they were just like wrong Muppets. So They just looked know, I mean, fun. They didn't seem to, they, they never established what the big danger or peril there was in terms of being deported to Planet Gonk. I imagine they're just all over you and it gets quite irritating. I could mention Babs Lord here, but I don't think I will. So, Tyler, what did you think of this musically? It <sighs> um, was a good answer. That was, uh, yeah, I mean, I like the Beatland music more than the Ballad Isle music. Let's put it that way. 
beginning of the film when you've got the the Graham Bond organization. That was okay. Um, I didn't think much. I've, I'll be honest with you. I fast forwarded through the Lulu sequence and much of the Ballad Isle stuff. I kind of just zoned out, really. I don't think I know anybody who likes Lulu. I will confess I have certain items in my collection that makes it sound more sinister than I intended. I have movies where Lulu turns up, and if anybody's in the room with me when she turns up, oh, not Lulu. Well, I know what reception to expect then if I ever put on the Dick Emery Hour DVD in Mixed Company, because she's in that. (laughs) I quite like to serve with love. So I'm just thinking about the opening theme of Gonk's Go Beat. Something like chocolate ice is very nice, strawberry pie, oh me, oh my. As we're doing this, I'm doing a bit of research into the American game show Match Game. And as part of that, I'm doing research into its presenter, Gene Rayburn. And he was a very successful DJ in New York in the 1940s. And the owners of the station would just say, yeah, your success is a fluke. He was in a partnership. And the producer or the station director was saying, it's a fluke. We don't know why people are listening to you, but it's nothing that you're doing. You're not that popular. So they actually went to a publisher and said, give us the worst song you've got. And if we can make that a hit, then obviously we have some sort of influence. And that song was Music, Music, Music. Put another nickel in, in the... And it was a hit. They then wrote a song called Hopscotch Polka. Not as famous as Music, 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 but apparently that was enough of a hit that I think Bing Crosby covered it. And just... Then listening to Strawberry Pie, Oh Me, Oh My, Chocolate Ice is Very Nice, Peppermint Cream, You Know What I Mean. Is this Gene Rayburn at it again? (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, I mean, okay, I'm getting away from mid-60s here, but do you remember that sort of phase, sort of late 90s, turn of the millennium or what have you, where you had a lot of songs which were just, each one you just thought, this is a pit, it can't get any worse than this, and one of them was that fast food song. Do you remember that one? And... You had things like, also like Wigfield, and you had... Who remembers Dupe? Yes, yeah, indeed, yeah. And and it seemed that the overall quality of lyrics generally was just disintegrating. But, you know, the songs were still popular, so... I'd say most of the music in this film was strictly pre-Beatles, or at least by 65, things had changed in terms of, you know, we had the birds coming on the scene, obviously the Beatles, the Stones... The music, particularly, like you say, the opening titles music, strictly pre-63. I think the word you're looking for, Tyler, is Squaresville. Squaresville, yeah. Bubblegum pop, or whatever. Well, you're both very disciplined because we've got this far into it and you haven't started talking about Charlie from Casualty. (gasps) Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Derek and Elaine, the popular brother-sister singing duo, sitting on a swing. Do you know what's a shame? Terry Scott didn't actually perform I Like Birds in the film. (laughs) (laughs) What year did that come out? What's the time for that? Also, the ending of this film was the most foregone conclusion in the history of cinema. Damn it, it was a year afterwards. Oh, maybe that was it, though. Maybe he's sitting around thinking, are these the feared golden gods of pop about whom I've heard so much? I shall surpass them. (laughs) (laughs) Look upon my works, ye mighty. The ending of the film, it doesn't end quite abruptly with Thornton saying, Mr. A&R saying, holding the golden guitar and saying, and now for the prizes or something, and then it just cuts to end credits. Yes, yes, there is that. But the fact is, there's the Max Fleischer adaptation. 
of Gulliver's Travels, which is not held up as an all-time animation classic. And that has Lilliput and the other one. Who are Lilliput at war with in Gulliver's Travels? Well, anyway, in this adaptation, they play Romeo and Juliet riff. And so the princess of one land is in love with the prince of the other. One land has a national anthem called Faithful and the other has a national anthem called Forever. And wouldn't you know it, you can actually sing one on top of the other and it becomes a song called Faithful Forever. So we know that this movie is going to end with a beat ballad, which is exactly what happens. And we're talking about there being sharp practice, cheating in Be My Guest. So sorry, we maybe haven't made this clear enough. The people of Ballad Island Beatland every year compete for a golden guitar and the judge is Mr. A&R Man. That's, what is this weird apocalypse that all that was left was the music industry? <laughs> all human knowledge was wiped out except for like old copies of the Melody Maker. The record mirror. Gary, did you think at one point when Mr. A&R said they'd listen to the Ballad Isle song? And they'd listen to the Beatland song. And he, for the first time, had a song. Did you think that <laughs> Frank Thornton was going to start going to pull out a washboard or something and start skiffling? <laughs> yes. Yeah, actually, yes. And here's my old mate, Eddie Gaylor, to join us. <laughs> I was quite disappointed. Jimmy Edwards on trombone. <laughs> No, the thing is, what I didn't get about this, right? So, yeah, you, you, I mean, you've both explained what sort of happens, and then Frank Fortin goes into business for himself and says, right, enough of this. That's the thing! The judge says, right, I've heard everybody entries. I've got my own entry that I'm going to bring on. What? Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, but he's Mr. Ray and Arang, do what he likes. It's his gaff. you think there'd be at least some booing, if not a full-scale riot. Though, I'll tell you, Scott protested in the strongest possible terms. This is the biggest injustice since uh, Pop Pirates won the contest. And it's like, yeah, but hang on a minute. This theatre just happens to have a sign with their name on. Because <laughs> we never saw them take the sign home. So the sign seemed to... Roger Daltrey maybe had brought it. Was he one of the judges as well? Maybe he was the only judge. Well, it would be like, well, you know, thanks Pop Pirates. Thanks everybody for playing. Uh, but actually, there's a late entry. I'm going to bring on The Who. And we've won. Well, <laughs> Yeah, the thing is, though, that some of these talent contests, they've got ringers in. Yeah, it's, it's quite a common thing, isn't it, for talent contests to be... Oh, I don't know what it was. I'd given up by then, I think. But the point is that after the beat ballad goes down so well, Frank Fortin says, OK, we're going to unite the, the two countries and we'll live as one and so on. Why did they need the competition? Why didn't they just declare that at the beginning of the film anyway? Yes! It's really all Mr. A&R's fault. If he's had the power to unite these people... I guess maybe the situation hasn't been this bad before. Well, actually, hang on a minute. They do have the war as well, don't they? Oh, yeah, they've got the battle, yeah. W was that all shot, specially shot, or was that actually stock footage of real battle? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find it was uh, shot especially for the film. No, I'm, I'm no expert on international diplomacy, but it seemed a very simple, simplistic way of uniting two formerly warring nations. Isn't it? Yeah, for somebody just getting just to Frank Thornton to stand up and just say it. I mean, I'm not going to draw any parallels with existing conflicts on on the planet right now. But presumably, if somebody, no matter who it was, even if it was the head of the UN, just suddenly stood up and said, "Right, you two, I, I know that you've you've not been getting on for the past few centuries, but as of now, you're one country." Particularly if that was actually what the dispute was about in the first place, that the one of them wanted to break away and the other one wanted to be united. Yeah, I would have thought that that was going to get a stronger reaction. 
from the audience in Frankfurt and just saying, can I ever go to this contest? I've got my own song. Also, the beat ballad was not really a unification of the two styles of music. It was one, then the other. That's right, it was. I thought they'd do soft versus loud chorus. Clearly, another thing that's been a victim of this apocalypse is all the albums by the Pixies. So nobody's mastered the quiet bit, loud bit <laughs> way of writing. But hang on a second, because the thing is, right, in terms of like business, there's not really any such thing as a merger, really, is there? And mer- mergers always have one dominant partner. So they're always really takeovers. So, I mean, which style had the most airtime in that song? I, I got the impression that it was the-, the beat. So that's really what's happened here, isn't it? It's a takeover. It's a takeover of Balladland by Beatville, whatever they're called. And they're going to try and sort of dress it up as if it's a sort of 50-50 thing. But basically, this is like, good news, everyone! You know, when your favourite comic has been absorbed <laughs> into oh, yes. the Beezer. Wow. Suddenly becomes part of Wizard and Chips. And, yeah. It's only just now occurred to me that this should have been a slightly disguised version of Mods and Rockers instead. Because beat versus ballads has never really been a thing no, in music. Not. So why didn't they do it like that? It might actually have some tiny bit of relevance to the young people, but I guess we've decided not to give anybody the benefit of the doubt and decided that the people really, the driving forces behind this didn't understand young people and didn't particularly care. You like pop, you like gonks. There's your pop and gonks. (laughs) 199 a square yard. Sorry, I was just going to say, Arthur Mallard, I was... Quite surprised to see him in it. I wasn't expecting to see him in it. I knew Terry Scott was in it. Yeah, what was Arthur Mallard? What was he meant to be exactly? Was he deputy prime minister, or was what was he? Was he? It was like sort of. He was like the enforcer, wasn't he? He was like heavy. I suppose you would. Okay, say. I've just gone crazy now. I'm wondering if anybody involved in this has ever seen the film The Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T, because there is a scene in that where musicians are kept prisoner, and you have this big spectacular number in the deepest jail where everybody does a routine. And so Arthur Mullard's kind of a an equivalent to the jailer in that scene. The jailer in that has a hearing aid because of the nature of his work. But surely if they'd seen that movie, the rest of it would have been slightly better. So I thought, right, we've had something that's trying to get to grips with the modern world. We've had something that doesn't really care. And Tyler had mentioned that there was a film with the Spencer Davis group. And I didn't bother to check. I just put it on the list and put it on the watch file. And then I watched it and I thought, oh. (laughs) I will say this. This does have some sense of it being a young person's world. The first thing we see is a bunch of young people mucking around on some manner of barge, playing the music and dancing. Isn't that enough? Did it have to do a bit more? to really convince that this was actually part of the youth revolution. Well, they've added Nicholas Parsons, so that helps. He's their manager, but he's not Norman Rossington. He's not telling them what to do too much. In fact, the whole thing comes about because he's embarrassed about telling them his past. It should have been a clue that the film was called The Ghost Goes Gear. Is this the closest one to a children's film foundation that we've seen? It really does feel like the monkeys made by the children's film foundation. They were actually slightly ahead of the monkeys. It's already piloted, it's in development, but I very much doubt anybody involved in this has been privy to what that TV series is going to turn out like. But we have that manic, sped-up chase, 
after the bass drum. We have a sort of weird bit of magic, but it has to be explained. So one of the group, what happens is they do a gig on a boat. Afterwards, their manager is helping them clear away. He drops the bass drum and it goes floating down the river. So the band then chase after it and it's all sped up and there's music playing and it's got that feeling slightly of a monkey caper. Now the drummer suddenly is dressed as an admiral, I think. Suddenly, but he does actually run into the boat, run downstairs to a part of a boat that probably has a name and then runs back up. His gear has been changed. He doesn't like click his fingers and he's suddenly in admiral gear. And so we get this bit when they finally catch up with the bass drum, he's still in his admiral gear. This had been the monkeys, it would have changed without seeing how he changed, and he would have changed back with no mention of it either. A weird sort of, what, you've suddenly decided that it needs a little realism? A little bit of continuity. Well, this is 1966, so as well as Hard Day's Night, help has now happened, and other big changes in the media. Well, uh, at one point Gary and I watched an evening's programming from 1964. We're thinking about, maybe there's a podcast in this. And the thing that really struck us was that while the television was as slow, not slow as a criticism, but it was moving at a certain leisurely pace, the adverts were really disconcerting. There was a Dulux advert that you shouldn't watch if there's anybody epileptic in the room, and I'm not exaggerating. It was really flash, 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 flash frames, psychedelic design. So that's something that's happening Adverts have caught up on that really quick style because, of course, they've got to get their message across quickly. And mainstream media is now copying the adverts in a way. So it did strike me that when something happens and the group have to go after it, it's just treated as pure comedy. And we know it's a film. There's no, are they going to get it or are they not? The whole joy is in the journey of watching them messing around and picking boats from nowhere and stuff. I'm slightly bemused because I've just made a discovery about this film and I didn't pick up on this at all when we were watching it. But basically, Nicholas Parsons, he meets up with Lady Rolfarp and Lord Plumley at the, the house, shall we call it. Did you not say, Tilt, that the actor playing Lord Plumley had like some temporary scarring after an accident, so he was only being shot in profile? Is that right? Oh, was that it? I thought it was one of the band who'd been so effective no it was the guy who played the ghost in you know the ghost in, who appears in doublet and hose oh, right. and then comes to life as one of the singers i actually managed to miss him the first time i watched it i didn't really understand the title it's only when i took a look the second time it's like oh right so yeah that's the ghost who's going gear but the, the thing is that i've only just discovered now that lord Plumley is played by tony simpson but this is the first time i've ever seen tony simpson without his beard. If you see a photograph, you just Google Tony Simpson's built for Y. You'll recognise him immediately if you've seen basically sort of any sitcom or drama in the 1970s. He usually, he's got a, a long beard and he's got round old sort of national health specs. And he's usually like got a hearing aid or something like that. Yes. And he's always playing a sort of stereotypical old man. I, I Was he in that episode of Are You Being Served where he flashes at his wife inadvertently? Yes, that's right. He's in I've Been Served three times as different characters. I'm astonished. I'm going to have to go back and look at this now because I've never seen Tony Smith without his beard. And of course, speaking of people who are in I Being Served, Jack Haig. Just in case you didn't have the youth audience entirely 
secured. <laughs> and I mean, this was the point at which I was beginning to think this might actually be one of the best films ever made. Because when you end up basically with the, the band and Nicholas Parsons and everybody just sort of marching with Jack Haig leading them to the old house, I thought, this is fabulous. This is brilliant. How come this is not on Sky Cinema tonight at 8pm <laughs> and 4K, for goodness sake? The strange thing about this, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but the strange thing about this film is that it's only like two thirds of a film and then one third like an ITV pop show from the mid-1960s because the plot just disintegrates. There is no plot in the end, really, is there? It's just a series of performances. Um, Tyler, I don't know if you really would have seen this, but did you ever have a, any sightings of an ITV kids show in the 80s called Hold Tight? Do you remember this at all? Made by Granada? No. Well, basically, it started off as Bob Carroll G's usually hosting from a theme park. It was one of those sort of shows where it was like, oh, this is the closest that ITV's got to like a sort of top of the pops, but it was for children's audience. But there was one series of that later on that had a plot running through it, and it was basically John Gorman was supposed to be lord of the manor in this stately home, and his butler was played by Graeme Stark. And there was all just weirdness and zaniness going on around them and what have you, and they were sort of oblivious to it. And meanwhile, all these musical acts were playing on the show, and this is what it was really reminding me of. Towards the end, it, it was like, if somebody had said to Nicholas Parsons, do you want to front this alternative to Top of the Pops? Uh, but you're going to be playing a character. I, I could sort of picture this. I could picture this being a TV pop show. The only titles were so short, it felt like a TV show. It felt like the latest instalment of The Ghost Goes Gear. Well, the thing is, the band, the Spencer Davis group, three quarters of them throughout the film look positively underwhelmed. Whereas the drummer, he sort of throws himself into it. And he's relatively amusing. But the rest of the band tend to look... <laughs> bored through much of this and you can't really blame them i'm really surprised they agreed to this <laughs> because yeah it doesn't look like they're naturals for this kind of work i haven't even found any evidence that this film was released well apparently i mean steve winwood has said that he was asked about this film and he later and he said that it was a mistake <laughs> uh, no kidding but apparently there's, on the DVD release, which I'm not sure where you can get the DVD these days, but there's a commentary. Uh, Muff Winwood apparently is doing a, a, a commentary for the film, Fallen on Hard Times, I guess. Oh, I thought you were going to give us some juicy gobbets from his commentary. Oh, no, no, because I've not heard the commentary. I've not seen the DVD. But no, it was just the cash-in, wasn't it? Because they'd had a couple of hits, Keep on Running, and I think Give Me Some Loving, or I'm a Man, around that time. And it was just a quick cash-in, really. And like you say, you attach some household names, Nicholas Parsons, Jack Haig, throw in some slightly more established acts like Mr. Ackerbilk <laughs> to keep the mums and dads happy, I suppose. I know what you're thinking of. Do you think that this is possibly, you know, they had the same sort of idea as you surmised during the making of Hard Day's Night, that they had the likes of Bramble and Rossington to kind of ring fence the Beatles in case they were terrible? Do you think the same applied with the casting of Parsons and the rest of the character actors in this? This doesn't look like it's something that's had that much pre-production time to really take these decisions. Uh, I don't think that kind of ring-fencing was something that was invented by Hard Day's Night. It was just, I think, very noticeable. Or rather, it wasn't noticeable because the Beatles were so good. It needed pointing out they might not have been good, and if they hadn't have been good, this film would have still been watchable, and it's hard to see that, whereas... 
it's a little bit more noticeable with the Spencer Davis group. So their manager has been trying to hide the fact that he's posh, even though he's Nicholas Parsons. <laughs> yeah, but he lives in an impressive pile of bricks somewhere in the country, doesn't he? But why would the group think any less of him? Can we think of a different bit of casting where somebody who could convincingly switch to posh, but you might think had actually been trying to pass himself off as a Baraboy made good? James Booth. He's Anthony, Anthony Booth. Anthony Booth, yeah. Now, James Booth was in many films of the 60s and 70s. Trying to bring a specific one to mind. Can't do it. If you look him up, you'll, you'll recognise the face. This is the hippest film, though, isn't it? Given all that, the group are subverting the authority figures, not in a necessarily unpleasant way, but they know more than to take these guys' world seriously. And I think the authority figures themselves know. We've lost a grip on the world. Our institutions, our ideals are a bit silly. And that's fine. I actually think young people might have had their opinions sought for this. The way that they do troop towards the manor house, it's in a lightly mocking fashion. It's not destructive, but it's like walking to a manor house is not something impressive in and of itself. Let's make it silly. And also, it's chucking it down. I don't think that's plot, Rain. (laughs) (laughs) So it does make this whole scene look a bit grim and overcast, no matter how many colourful umbrellas are brought out. Anybody want to give me an argument? Anybody want to argue the two other films being hipper than this? Come on. (laughs) I'm handy. Uh, um, No. No. Had anybody heard of any of the other acts that weren't Spencer Davis? Dave Barry. Ackerbilk. You see, Dave Barry I knew as a name. He has that interesting thing of hiding himself. Yeah. He needed to. Oh? What's this little dig at Dave Barry then? He needed to. What? Well, he wasn't a particularly good looking fella, was he? Okay, tweet your passport photo, Tyler. <laughs> and of course, Mr. Ackerbilk gets a name check. Jack Haig names him specifically. He gets a really distracting and slightly disorientating name check. We just get this sudden flash frame of Jack Haig going, Ackerbilk! <laughs> Again, slightly mod, you know, a little bit of quick cutting. Is it style? Is it modernism? Or is it a mistake? Oh, you forgot to cut in the bit with Jack Haig. I'll do, I'll do it here. <laughs> it's as good as anywhere. <laughs> and then you've got the Spencer Davis group in the first two, what, half hour of the film three quarters of an hour of the film, and then they get forgotten about right until the end. They're just sat inside the manor house, sat on the stairs with that little boy runs upstairs and contrives to get stuck in a suit of armour. The film decides to have a plot in the last three minutes. <laughs> the blonde singer, the Polly character, Sheila White. Now, she was in lots of those 70s sex films, weren't she? She was in the Confessions films, and she was also in Dear Mother Love Albert with Rodney Bewes. Now, why has Rodney Buse not turned up in any of these films? Oh, of course! He should have been the manager. Am I putting too much thought into this? <laughs> should I stop now? Has this movie finally broken me? If you have to ask the question, then the answer's probably yes. So anyway, Spencer Davis, Ackerbilk, and the rest, I honestly couldn't tell you anything about them. They were all strangers to me. There was a girl group called the Three Bells. They became the Satin Bells, and they had a few kind of hits, or they weren't really hits, the, the few singles which crept into the charts, and then they ended up 
the last scene appearing on some children's TV program in the early 70s, never to be seen again. You've got Lorne Gibson, who's the guy I referred to earlier, who was the ghost, who was also singing. He was the guy with the scar. The ghost didn't have any dialogue, though, did he? The ghost was not essential to the plot, despite the fact that he's the title character. Well, because the little boy is the ghost, isn't he? Well, that's what they... <laughs> they mistake the very annoying small boy in the suit of armour for the ghost. And there's that runaway at the end. Something's occurring to me now. All these films feel like they're from a world where the British invasion didn't happen. They all feel quite parochial. The other thing is, the, the Spencer Davis group didn't play any of their hits. You'd have thought that there would be the opportunity for them to play Give Me Some Loving or Keep On Running or I'm a Man or one of them. But they just played a few songs which weren't hits. I don't understand the, the rationale behind that. Do you think there's some sort of soundtrack contract kink being exploited here like we had with Our Day's Night? Like the record company said, well, you can make the film, but I don't think you're getting any of the hits. This film company cannot afford to license these from us. So, yeah, you can record some songs for them, for that thing. I think as if they had done Keep On Running, this film would be a lot more famous because that clip would keep turning up in things. VH1 would have been playing it to death in the 90s. It would have been in the rock and roll years. Yeah, absolutely. With clips of Nicholas Parsons with a fish in his head. I'm thinking that, that for some reason you'd have a generation of children who grew up whenever any time they heard Keep On Running, thought, what was Jack Higg doing in that? Right at the beginning of the film, Nicholas Parsons, when he gets on, he's trying to get onto the boat or he's just got onto the boat and there's that obligatory, um, excuse me, madam line. Yes! Where he mistakes the bloke with long hair, he sort of turns around with that sort of affronted expression on his face. And I think that guy was wearing the same wig that was worn by Harrison Marks in Come Play With Me. <laughs> do we have to do this all over again, in the words of Peter Talk? Have we chosen poorly for our mid-60s pop films? Do we have to find something a bit more gritty? Or can we trust ourselves to find something better when we eventually do late-60s pop films? Conclusions. Comparing these three films to the previous three films from the 60s, not Hard Day's Night, but the other three early 60s pop films that you watched, has there been any progression, would you say? Has there been any development? They're all lagging behind It's Trad Dad. The one progression I see, and it's really between everything else on one side and The Ghost Goes Gear, is The Ghost Goes Gear does have that element of young people in a young people's world. They don't have to take the authority figures seriously at all. They don't need really anything from them. Oh, and there's a clear breach of uh, ITA regulations when it goes straight from a news story about Nicholas Parsons' old pile into an advert for Nicholas Parsons' old pile. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Parsons' old piles? It was a bit blatant, wasn't it? I mean, actually, just did they actually finish the newscast or did it just go straight from Tim Brinson into... Yeah, it a, did feel a lengthy like advert that. for what we've just been talking about, which wasn't really Aren't there a news like story. Large in the first areas place? of parts of the southeast of England that are completely unaware of the existence of Quantro because of IBA rules. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be explained. And the the actress in the advert was also a continuity announcer for Television South, and therefore that advert couldn't appear in that region. It's a thing that strikes me over. It's probably happening over there now, but it's a thing that strikes me over here when I watch TV. Watch Modern Family, and in the ad break, there's an ad with one of the cast of Modern Family, maybe even more than one. Tent right. <laughs> and it all, it all began with 
Ghost goes here. <laughs> That's how the rot started. I think we've been a bit damning with fair damning. I don't regret watching any of these movies. There's fun to be found in all of them. Be My Guest was probably the least fun. And yet, of course, that was the one that was actually trying to be a proper film. Yeah, I, I'm with Gary. I think of the three, Be My Guest was the one that I uh, liked the most. But I would have been happier if it had been centered around the guest house. The thing is, I mean, if we were to do like three films from a later period of time, would they actually be fun or would they be... I'm, I'm resisting saying Magical Mystery Tour, but I mean, would they be that kind of thing? Well, Magical Mystery Tour is meat and drink to us. Let's face it, Magical Mystery Tour is the gonks go gear with the ghost in the guest house. My worry is, is that I'm going to look for pop films and I'm going to find one that is way too hard of heart and outlook. I don't want to be dishonest. I don't want to do too much cherry picking, but at the same time, I think there comes a point when a movie would stop being a pop movie and start being an issues movie with some pop. I don't think we're going to talk about Quadrophenia because you want to look at something that is really about pop in society. So we're going to go and hit various lists and start looking up what we're going to talk about next time we tackle pop movies of a certain period of time. But our schedule is already being rejigged, isn't it, Gary? Well, sorry about this, but you know real life that we very rarely address on the podcast because it's not as much fun as all the nonsense that we talk about. Sometimes it gets in the way and work commitments and other irritations of that ilk have required me to switch to a fortnightly schedule for the podcast for the foreseeable future, probably till the end of the year. So we're going to be back in a fortnight's time with the next show and then a fortnight thereafter and so on and so on and so on. But if you want to know all the details about when the next show is coming up and so on and so on, then just follow us on Twitter, Jaffas for Proust, or you can find us on Facebook via the same name and all the details will be on there. Speaking of which, I uh, got it too late for the Hard Day's Night podcast, but thanks to Stephen Forkus for pointing out the theory that the Beatles were a Marxist plot and that all their songs had been written by one person in an attempt to degrade Western society. I had heard that theory before, and thanks to Ellipticus who followed up with a link to a very dense essay. See, I hadn't heard that theory, but yes, it all makes sense now. You're not getting out of watching Magical Mystery Tour one more time. Wow. <laughs> You're being a bad podcaster. Fortunately, we have two weeks to improve Gary's ability to podcast correctly. And what will we be talking about then, Gary? Well, now, here's the thing about this, because when we come back in two weeks, it's actually not going to be Jaffa Kicks for Proust at all. It's going to be the sitcom club. Remember that? Hey. That show that we used to do way, 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 way back in time. Ed's going to come back for one night only. And we're going to be talking about the Nigel Neal sitcom, which wasn't a huge success, sadly. But we're going to be tracing it around the schedule, finding out where it began, where it ended up, what happened in between. We're going to be talking about Kinvig. So, Gary, if someone wanted to watch this Kinvig ahead of the sitcom club podcast where could they find it is it on youtube it is on dvd i believe it's network is it not yeah i think it's a network release and so yes it's all available on there jaffa cakes will be back in a month and we're going to be talking about a game show there's a clue 
in this edition about what game show we're going to be talking about and we've put an epic amount of work into this one we've been working on this one for over a year won't sound like it because hey we make it look easy (laughs) tyler where would people if they wanted to follow yourself on twitter not in a sinister way just if they wanted to see what you're up to where where, where would they go i'm at lapsed cat Hey, hey hey and in the meantime if you want to hear any of our previous podcasts you can find them all at podnose.com you can find Jaffix or Proust on there you can find the sitcom club on there and you can find all manner of other podcasts there's hundreds of them on there by now until next time Tyler thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you Tilt I've been Tilt I've been Gary and this has been Jaffix or Proust